first time I met him, um, he was, I think he was on Underbelly. It's Damo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was in love with him. I was in love with Damien Walsh Halling. Me and my mum would be like, he's on the telly again. And um, I was, it was my first television show. I was shooting uh, a show that I've completely forgotten the title of. Whatever happened to that guy with Peter Moon, directed by Ted Emery, and he had a small part, and mm. he winked at me on set, and I lost my <laughs> fucking mind. I lost my mind. Occasionally, I just bump into him, and I don't think we've had a good conversation yet because I'm always just really bashful. Like, uh, well, he actually said the same thing about you. He did not. He said, "You know, you should get to do this podcast. There's this really this you know saucy minx yeah. that I worked with." Yeah. Um, I winked at her and she... On that show that you said, I winked at her, but she, she never she, yeah. reciprocated. <laughs> I was really embarrassed. So now every time I see her, I kind of go into my shell and I yeah. don't know what to say. Such a... Name's just... Tegan Bottom... Something. Scratcher or something. Yeah. yeah, it could have been amazing between us. Such a shame. This is episode five. Welcome to Coming Up Next, today, Tuesday. What day is it? Tuesday. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to episode five, friends. Uh, today, it is my absolute pleasure to invite into the Ramble Room, into the Pantsless Studio this week, a very good friend of mine and former housemate. You may know her from such shows as This Is Littleton and Have You Been Paying Attention? She's set to star in the upcoming feature film Oddball, uh, Holding the Man, and a little show called Sweatshop, which, you know, you might have heard of. Uh, she's also got a very small part in the upcoming Molly Meldrum miniseries, Tegan Higginbotham. So without further talking, um, here's the talking. I've noticed you know doing these podcasts is how sort of crucial that flow is to something feeling organic and like a conversation yeah and how you do get into that in real life it's not something that you can really fake yeah I like I think also what I just like about the podcast format though is it gives you because we are very busy everybody's always very very busy mm. it gives you an opportunity to just go oh all I have to do for an hour is is talk and mm. you I feel that people relax into it a bit more. Mm. How good is talking when you're like actually talking about something interesting yeah. or personal? It's wonderful. Yeah, not not just small talk. Yeah, it is very nice. Mm. But often, yeah, it's just not prioritized anymore. If you are talking with somebody, there's generally still an iPhone there or somebody's also got like half a, you know, an eye on a, on a laptop or something like that. Yeah. Mm. So what are we up to? Number five. Yay. With Tegan Higginbotham. Thank you. Very excited to have you here. I'm very um, excited to be here. To talk to you about this. The, the podcast called Coming Up Next. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually thinking about changing it to award-winning podcast coming up next, like actually having that as the name. Nice. Because, you know. It's they... hard to fit onto a Twitter handle though. Yeah. Do they even, but do they have podcast awards in Australia? I haven't heard of them in Australia. I know that they're definitely over in the States, mm. but I haven't heard of them down here yet. Knowing us, we'll get them in 10 years' time. <laughs> it just, yeah, I just feel like it'll create more interest if, if people see the words award-winning next yeah. to it for some reason. You know, it's a good... We'll just give the stamp to ourselves. Well, you can start the award. You can be the one. Like, yeah. Be the change that you want to see in the world. Isn't that what you have to do? <laughs> um, I'm very excited to be here because I've heard about the whole pants off thing rumor is already out that uh what did nato tell you (laughs) everybody's talking about it no it's uh it's you know i told you why i told him to wear pants and he just said no no it's cool everyone will be fine with it yeah well you know this is what i like it's uh it's 11 a.m in the morning and i'm in a man's room with no pants i mean weekend one tegan Mm. one world zero yeah i mean i just I'm really, I mean, you know me, I like to be professional. Evidently, my brother does not. No. Anyway. (laughs) The face. Uh, So you're a comedian. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure, I can't remember how much we've spoken about, but 
I like to talk to people on this about why they've decided to be insane in their life and follow their heart. <laughs> I know, I know. It's um, it's an interesting, wasn't it? I, I think it's a combination of I had parents who were both in jobs that made them really unhappy. So I, instead of having that dialogue in my youth of you should go into something that, you know, is going to build into a stable career, I had them literally going, chase your dreams, do what makes you happy, which was very good for me. Um, I also had, I think, in grade two, a teacher who told me I could act really well and I just stupidly just went, oh, okay, that's what I'll do then. Like I fixated <laughs> on that at a very young age. So um, I don't know. I, I've known that I've wanted to perform since I can remember. It's, mm. it's been it's been the job that I've wanted. There's been no other realistic option. And do you remember? Do you remember the first time that you performed or you entertained? Because you know when you are in that zone, particularly I guess as a comedian, where mm. it's really you and the audience. Like when you're in that kind of as soon as you step out on stage, yeah. that's you create a, an alternate reality where it's just. Yeah. the audience and you do you remember the first time that you had that experience with a friend or a family member or something I remember from a very young age I was that typical child who wanted to um perform for their parents like they'd constantly be forced to sit down and watch me doing a show <laughs> on the mantelpiece on the half sorry or something you know in front of the fireplace um so I, I always remember that being a very strong part of my of my youth but I think it was primary school that it started coming together more with the annual production. And even back then, I was cast in the funnier roles in the shows. And I realized that because I couldn't have the leading actress role, I got a kick out of distinguishing myself by being funny. Um, there was this one part I had to play. It was in A Kid's Summer Night's Dream, which was, yes, the primary school version of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream and I was playing Helena. Oh, and it was called a Kid's Summer It was called Dream, a Kid's right? Summer Night's Dream, yes. And <laughs> I was Helena and I had to do this outrageous wailing. I had to cry and and people kept laughing at it and I was like, all right, I'll just keep pushing this further then. And that's just, you know, what I did. I found that strength in in kind of making myself uglier and more ridiculous but getting attention that way, yeah. Mm. Isn't it funny how that kind of thing can and and because you i guess you get that reaction you get mm. a love a loving reaction almost or or yeah. that's how you receive it that at such a young age you go cool this is how i get that yeah it is actually quite interesting to think that back then i mean even such a small thing like what role the teacher gave me in that play could have had such a profound effect on on the direction I've taken my career because I really do recall those initial moments of going, yeah, comedy is, comedy is good. Comedy is how I'm going to be different. If I was the lead actress, it would have been like, oh yeah, well maybe having my hair like this is how I'd be. You know what I mean? You never know. Mm. So it's terrifying for parents out there because everything you do is going to change, <laughs> change your kids. Yeah. So basically you've got to put your child in a box yeah. with the thing that you want them to do. Basically, yeah. yeah. Just constantly get them to put Band-Aids on you and be like, oh my gosh, thank you for your medical advice, child. You are so talented. <laughs> Enjoy 13 years of medical school. Exactly. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking about how much, you know, your childhood and what you brought up in, how much that can shape you and is it kind of nature versus nurture, that kind of argument. Yeah. Um. I think it's definitely one of those things, as I said, from a very young age, I was a performer. But, you know, the fact that I grew up in a household where we watched a lot of Monty, Monty Pythons, a lot of Blackadder, you know, that British sort of comedy, that's mm. definitely a massive influence for me now. That's what I gravitate towards, you know, the, the age old argument of whether you're the British office or the uh, or the American office. I'm British, absolutely. And I will fight people on this. But, um, yeah, I think if the spark is there, it can be can be extinguished if you don't nourish that and if you've got perhaps parents who don't help and support you and you're just not shown the right things and given the right experiences but yeah mm. yeah anyway. yeah i went uh this week actually and gave a talk at my high school mm. i got asked to come and speak at their um year 10 to 12 careers day mm. and when they called me i was like I think you've got the wrong number. <laughs> you've got the right person. <laughs> you sure? Because I'm pretty sure that you guys didn't really agree with all the choices that I was making when I was like, I want to be a, an actor or a yeah. filmmaker, you know, at a fairly conservative private Jewish school. Yeah. 
and I said as much in the speech that I gave, um, but my drama teacher had put me up for to do this talk yeah. because he's seen that I've followed this passion and this this dream. And now looking back on it, you kind of go, well, I, I guess I connected with this guy at maybe age 11. Yeah. Uh, when he put me in, or, eight, or 12, when he put me in like one of the first plays I was in at school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he gave me that kind of arm over the shoulder, um, you know, that, that kind of loving um, encouragement. Yeah. And which I wasn't getting, which, you know, you didn't get from your, your maths or your science or, or your English teachers per se. Yeah. And it's funny how that then uh, that became, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. This is how I'm going to create this in my life on a consistent basis. It's very funny, though, because I had a incredibly similar, similar experience at the end of last year. I went back to my high school and had a chat with them. And it was exactly the same thing. My parents actually got called into year 12 when I'd picked my subjects because I had chose no maths or sciences. Mm. It was all arts. And the teachers went, this is really concerning. She's a very good student and her, her grades are immediately going to come down because of all of this. And and I just knew that that was the direction that I wanted to head in. And then, you know, now coming back to your high school where they were not supportive of what I chose to do and actually sitting there going, well, there we go. <laughs> Suck that. Mm. Um, But that said, it is also a very reasonable thing, I still think, for teachers to at least speak honestly about the fact that this is not a lucrative profession Mm. for most. I've been doing this for over 10 years now, and I'm just, and you would have witnessed this because we live together. Yep. You know, it's only in the past maybe year and a couple of months that this has actually been sustainable Mm. for me. Before that, it has been, I've been working in retail. So it, it's not unreasonable, I think, for parents and teachers to be skeptical. To be skeptical and to be wary. Because I also do think I'm one of the luckier people in the fact that I am now sustaining mm. a living in the arts. You know, that is actually really fortunate. So it's, it is wise to just go, oh, <laughs> think about that for a moment. I agree with that uh, on one level. But I also think we're in a changing climate at the moment as well with job security and that sort of thing. I mean, I was speaking to someone who um, is a teacher and they were saying that the security in that is non-existent anymore as well. Mm. Um, And that, you know, where previously people were getting long contracts, they're now fortunate to get a 12-week contract. Yeah, right. Uh, And I think that that is perhaps applicable across the board. And my understanding after this careers day is that a lot of students and people who are that sort of 15 to 18 bracket are actually looking at creative endeavors a lot more than we did. And it's becoming, it's being taken a lot more seriously. Yeah. I think that if people could start teaching the business aspects behind a creative, you Mm. know, path, that would be incredibly valuable. You know, I look at the things that I I don't have skills in, for example, when tax time comes around, I'm at an absolute loss. I wouldn't have a clue. I was not told entirely what a superannuation was and didn't really look into that until the last couple of years and that's the sort of stuff that you know that you should still be focusing on regardless of whether you're going into an arts job or not these are mm. these basic things how to structure a business and you know because when you are going into the arts you are your business yeah and that still needs to be taken incredibly seriously and i think perhaps that's also the difference between the people who succeed and those who don't and the ones who do look at it still like a business then you can actually make it work for you, I think. Mm. That and the one other thing that I've kind of identified that's really important is finding out what you can do that nobody else or not many other people can do and trying to focus on that just a little bit. I think that um, one of the things that I realized at the beginning of last year is I uh, I cut my hair really short and I dyed it brown. <laughs> and suddenly I got auditions and there was a little bit of me that went, oh, really? Really? That's what this was. It was about my hair. But then you go, well, before that, I was a girl with long blonde hair. And that means that I'm competing with how many other people? Like so many other beautiful women with long mm. blonde hair. When I cut my hair short, suddenly that group shrunk down a lot. And I went, okay, so now I'm the funny, quirky girl with short brown hair. There's not so many of us around. Those silly little things that you kind of go, oh, but that's so superficial and unnecessary. You go, well, no, it's it's a thing, actually. Mm. So find ways to differentiate yourself from everybody else. Mm. And isn't it funny how at that point in time, you know, probably 18 to say 25 is you just 
feel like you need to fit in with everyone else. Yeah. But the reality is that you actually just need to be yourself and find that way of expressing, you know, what it is about you that differentiates you from other people or what the best yeah. way to do that is. And I think as well, when you when you look at the pool of performers and artists that we are in, there is some incredible talent in this country. Like people can act, people can sing and dance and perform. And mm. if you, you know, it is in a way a big competition. You need to go, right, what else can I do? What else can I give? What other skill can I put on the table here? Yeah. Mm. So you come out of school and do you go straight into acting? I did. Um, so I went out of school and I started putting together my first uh, fringe show with a couple of friends and just sustained that with uh, with part-time work. And then kind of just snowballed. I mean, when I was still coming out of high school, my definite focus was acting more than comedy. I didn't really discover comedy for a good couple of years after that. But then once I fell into that funny world, it just really snowballed. And, you know, then all your friends are comedians and then they go, why don't you try stand up? And you go, oh, OK, because that seems like a good idea, which mm. it's not. But, <laughs> but then you're trying stand up and then you're writing funny things. And then, you know, it does keep taking you down a separate path. And unfortunately, in the past year, I've been able to come back and connect with just acting a little bit more, which has been fun. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I did. I left high school and I went straight to performing and creating. I am. Um, I did a lot of part-time acting classes, but I didn't do any of the big schools, which is also different because that set me on a very separate path as well. Mm. You know, I think that uh, the skill set that somebody who's graduated from a NIDA or a VCA, the skills that they must have would be just outstanding. But um, I remember I, I dated a guy for a couple of years. Oh, actually, no, it was much less than that. It was about a year. And he'd just come out of NIDA and he was just the most beautiful, wonderful performer, really amazing but uh, on set, he didn't know what to do with himself. He didn't have that side of things where because I'd been working, I felt a lot more comfortable in that area. And it's just, you know, just different skills. Mm. Mm. And the Fringe show that you were working on, was that your first Watson show? Yeah, well, back then we weren't Watson. So I've been uh, working with a guy called Adam McKenzie for 10 years now. And we used to um, be part of a trio called The Hounds which was myself, Adam McKenzie, and oddly enough, my high school drama teacher, Rob Lloyd. Mm. And so we put together this show called The Hound of the Baskervilles, where it was just an interpretation of the, uh, the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle story. And it went really well, and we had a lot of fun. And so we kind of kept working together from there. Mm. And so, yeah, it is 10 years later, and I still work with Adam McKenzie. We're in a different group now. We're called Watson. And, and Rob's gone off and, and chased his own other dreams in a different direction slightly. But yeah, that was the first time I worked with them. And back then, I would not have thought that 10 years on, I'd still be working with Adam McKenzie because he was 27 and I was 17 and we didn't like each other. <laughs> and we literally used to communicate with each other through the other guy in the group. I'd be like, Robbie, can you tell Adam this? And he'd be like, oh, and he'd tell, like, we just had nothing in common. And I think in Adam's point of view, he was a little bit like, why are we hanging out with the kid? What is the kid doing here? Mm. And it's just so strange that that was the relationship that actually endured. Mm. So that kind of segued into comedy then? Yeah, it did. So that was just, like I said, it was a fringe show and it went really well. So we then did it in the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And then as soon as you finish one show in the Comedy Festival, you start writing your next one. And yeah, it really did. It just kind of snowballed from there. Mm. Well, do you remember what the first joke you ever wrote was? <laughs> you know what it was? And apparently it's one of the most told jokes in the world. So please don't judge me too much on this. But and I'm going to I'm going to butcher this. I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, my dad's uh, my dad's Christian, but my mom's Jewish. So, you know, you could say I'm a little I'm, I'm kind of a Jew. I'm Jewish. You know, something along those <laughs> lines. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. But I'd written it and I was so proud. And this is actually <laughs> exactly how our relationship was. I told it to Adam McKenzie. And he's like, that's terrible. And it's been done. I was like, damn it. <laughs> so it was something shocking along those lines. Yeah. Mm. And how long into your comedy career until you did a solo stand-up show? It was about five, oh no, gosh, about six years. Mm. So I started just doing a lot of sketch and um, and still, you know, a little bit of film work in there. And I really enjoyed that. But it was amazing how different then moving into working as a solo performer felt 
to the extent that uh, I didn't realize that when I'm working with other people on stage, I wait for them to talk before I take a breath. So I will just barrel out dialogue. And then when they're doing their lines, that's when I'll breathe. Hmm. So when I did my first stand-up set, I kept on running out of breath and I literally <laughs> forgot to breathe on stage. And I was hmm. terrified. And the interesting thing with stand-up is it still terrifies me. I've been doing it for quite a few years now and I'll have some gigs where I'm fine and then other ones where I get the sort of anxiety and just just absolute fear that you get at, at a first gig. Like it still hasn't gone. And, you know, you hear people like Judith Lucy, who's one of my absolute heroes in stand-up, discussing that still this many years onto, into her career, she still has those moments where she's terrified of it. And, uh, yeah, it's a really it's a really challenging aspect of my career that I still grapple with quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Who are some of your mentors or idols? Like, how did you learn, I guess, stagecraft in comedy? A lot of it was just through simply making mistakes because in those early years where I was just doing a lot of sketch performing, there weren't necessarily any mentors per se. I was just in a very protected environment where I had these two older guys kind of leading the way and I could just follow and watch a lot of what they were doing. So I learned a lot of the craft of being in a comedy group and how to conduct yourself in a festival and how to make a festival work for you. I I learned those lessons in those early years in a very padded environment, which was good. Any uh, any, any big (laughs) banana skin moments? Um, You know, no, like, like I said, I did, I, um, I did learn a lot through watching their mistakes. We've done shows that completely didn't work and after a weekend have not known how to handle that we were performing a heap of shit on stage every <laughs> night and how that really can ruin a group and how one year that did happen, we did this one show and it just wasn't working and we started fighting with one another and the whole season was an absolute nightmare. And instead of coming together and going, right, what do we do? What changes do we make to make it better? It, it became more of a, well, this isn't, this was this person's fault and this was this person's fault. And you just witness from actually being in that, that just doesn't work. If you're not with a group that you can communicate with and work a problem, forget it. Cause you'll have really, really horrible, horrible experiences. I've learned just to, uh, just to try and be really nice to a lot of other people who you're working with in the festival. Cause everybody's tired and everybody's exhausted and everybody's on a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And if you're having a really good festival, like if you're selling out all your shows, they kind of, you need to also be really gentle about how you discuss that because there's nothing worse. And I've been in this situation where you're just not selling any tickets. There's nothing worse than <laughs> chatting with the person who's like, oh, I'm making millions of dollars. And you're like, oh, I want to die. But, you know, so it's, you've <laughs> got to be careful when you're down and also when you're up as well, just to try and just be gentle with people. Yeah. Mm. Do you... Do you create, is there like a, I know a lot of comedians create like a persona. It's mm. like a, their comedy persona. Yeah. Um, like say Jim Jeffries, for example, yeah. is, um, you know, is sort of larger than life, drunk on yeah. stage, foul mouth, very in- intelligent. Yeah. Um, but I imagine that probably not like that in real life. No, a lot of comics from what I've experienced, they're, they're really shy. They're really shy people. Um, so I've actually met some of the, the, you know, the people who I've looked up to for a long time and expected them to be these really big personalities. And then you meet them and they're really quiet and they're very self-conscious and they're a bit socially awkward. And it's very strange actually seeing that, that difference, that contrast there. Yeah. Mm, I've heard that, yeah, Steve Martin, who's lauded as one of the, the stand-up comedians mm. of all time, is very introverted and quiet. Yeah. And, and I think it can cause a little bit of... Uh, tension perhaps with a fan who does finally meet their their idol and expects them to be that person with you know with the fan and this is not necessarily their fault expecting them to be on but that sort of energy that a lot of these performers put out on stage it it does it zaps them and when you come off and when you're just in your daily life you just want to be that quiet more thoughtful side of yourself and it can be a bit jarring Mm. Mm. so do you remember the first time that you went out on stage to do your first solo show uh i remember my first stand-up set and i remember that i um i took notes out even though i'd rehearsed my piece like a script i knew word for word what i was going to say i took notes out just in case 
and my hands were shaking that much that you could hear the paper flapping, like you could <laughs> hear it off stage. And I think also that was one of the very bad habits that I got into really early on, which was learning my stand-up routines like a performance I script, wrote. which is really bad because as soon as you lose one word, you've lost your place. And then you're not you're no longer telling a story. You're, you're reciting lines, and that's not what stand-up is. It's a very different craft. So it's actually taken me a long time to get out of those sorts of bad habits as well. Yeah. Mm. But it was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> How did you overcome that? You just have to keep doing it and you you just need to get back on stage and do it again and you need to try and, and, and create uh, processes so that when you do have those bad gigs that you recover from them easier mm. because I think that, you know, I, I do know some people who if they have a bad gig, they're wiped out and they're genuinely very upset for days and you also need to weigh up the, the costs if that is the case. If you're in a job where you risk being unhappy for half the week because it hasn't gone well, you need to you need to really assess whether you should be in that job because when a stand-up set works or when a when a show with a sketch group works you are the happiest person in the world but there is that horrible other side to it and I've had gigs where I'll have a run of gigs uh, and they go good 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 better 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 and then for some inexplicable reason the audience just hates you Mm. and it's the weirdest thing and you can you can try and pull it apart as much as possible but sometimes it just doesn't work and it's yeah you need to find ways to get over that quicker or else it becomes quite a dangerous job i think for mental health Mm. Mm. isn't it funny how people pay money to come and hate on you yeah you really do feel like that sometimes and i think that as i uh as i you know, my confidence grows as a performer. Sometimes I'm calling audiences out on that shit mm. and just going, what are you doing here? Like, just come on now. We need to we need to snap out of this, especially if I'm hosting and I do feel like I have a little bit more freedom to do that. But other times, you know, they, they just won't like you. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about the people who <laughs> love what you do. <laughs> There's some, I hope. Well, you, you, I could see there was like a little spark in your eye, sparkle in your eye, as you said when it when you're on it's the best feeling in the world Mm. tell me about the best feeling in the world i think uh i think at the end of the day all all stuff aside if you're going out on stage to perform stand-up you just want to make people laugh it's not about i mean i don't know what it's like for other people but in that moment it's not about what this does for your career it's not about who's in the audience it's not about anything like that it's just you just want to hear people laugh and when you get that back oh god it feels so good and it's just it's such a lovely it's such a lovely thing and it's um yeah it is incredibly rewarding when it works and because sometimes how a joke will hit you sometimes you sit there and you 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 fuss over it for ages and you craft it and you you take out words and put it and you know you really focus on it other times you'll just think something and you go i think that's funny and when that's right you're like yes this is the best it's really nice Mm. yeah and do you think that feedback is sort of then linked to i'm trying to get not get too psychoanalytical Mm. but is linked back to that childhood thing of you know, being in the play or being in front of your parents and receiving that, the feedback then? Maybe it's just the, you know, one of the things that's interesting about stand-up is the in, the feedback is instantaneous. You know, if you're performing in a play, quite often you'll have to wait until after the show to hear what people thought or you'll read reviews or in most other jobs, you wait to hear what your boss has to think about you. In stand-up, if you've done your job, they laugh and it it is instant feedback and either instant gratification or instant, you know... Mm horribleness um yeah exactly so no i think it's just knowing that you're doing that you're doing a good job i don't know it's hard to explain one thing i do find fascinating is that being on stage uh and i know a lot of performers who feel like this you're instantly immune to illness and a lot of other stuff i don't know if you've you've ever experienced this but you know how sometimes before you go on stage you'll feel like you've got a cold or you need to go to the bathroom or you're worried that you've drunk a little bit much. And then as soon as you go on stage, you have this bubble where for an hour it all goes away and your main focus is just mm. performing. And it's, I find that fascinating as well that you're, you are immune to the rest of the world for that period of time that you're on stage. It's, it's quite interesting. Mm. It's, yeah, it's when you're like fully present yeah. and you're fully focused and it's actually like, in a way, you've set yourself an objective yeah. like tonight or in this moment, 
it's not about me and it's not about well I guess it is about the audience yeah it's it's about creating this buzz of good feeling and goodwill yeah and I, I mean in the last show um I did for the Melbourne Comedy Festival which just ended it was called who's afraid of the dark and I did this with my big sketch group and I can actually now openly talk about the show which is really nice because <laughs> we've had this rule that what happens in the show stays in the show for ages but yeah we would invite people to the show on, under the premise that we were going to tell ghost stories and that there were only going to be three performers there. But by the end, everybody had been taken into the old Melbourne jail and they get taken on a tour of this building, but it's not a tour. They're kind of like dragged mm. in. There are other performers hiding who do these really cool little pieces in like cells and in police stations. And it was just, it kind of became this interactive ghost ride slash horror mm. movie slash just stupid, ridiculous adventure and it took us an hour and a half every night. It was the longest show we've ever done for a comedy festival. And what was lovely is a few personal things did crop up during festival for me, which were really stressful and really full on. But I knew that for an hour and a half every night, they they were not going to be there. And every night I just get to worry about making this person yell at this particular time and then this lady laugh at this other time. And it was just really lovely. <laughs> It's a phenomenal show. I saw it at thank Fringe. You. you guys won Best Comedy at we Melbourne did, Fringe. Congratulations. Was, thank you. We, you got, did, we put on a scary show and we won Best Comedy. We were like nailing it. Yeah. <laughs> and you were nominated for a massive award at the Comedy Festival. We were nominated for a Gibbo, which was really nice. That's um, There are a few awards that they hand out during Comedy Festival. The Barry is for the best show. That's like the, you know, the best movie award. And then the Gibbo is for a show that's tried to do something a little bit different outside of the box. So we were actually very honoured to receive that nomination because I think we were... We were pushing ourselves and we were trying something quite different. So it was lovely that it was acknowledged positively. Yeah. Mm. It seems to be a running theme for you is trying something outside the box. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do for my next solo show. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm coming at it from that same process again of like, okay, what's going to be different and exciting and just a little, yeah, left of center. Is that something that has sort of run through your life is trying to intentionally be different or trying to yeah I think so and so far it's worked and you do sometimes get in those situations where uh and I'm sure that everybody has this and this definitely stems back to high school of being like oh I just want to be normal I just want to fit into that that group or be accepted be accepted one of my big things that I'm incredibly self-conscious about and it's so silly is uh I'm not a massive drinker and I get tired really early i'm like if i can get to bed by midnight the latest on a big night out i'm like oh this is the best so had a bender yeah Ooh, i was out until twelve fifteen. um <laughs> but i think that because comedy is such a massive drinking culture and it does have a very large partying culture i'm always like oh i'm not one of the cool kids i'm not i'm not it and that's my thing of just going i wish i could fit in in that regard but there's always going to be something that you feel like you don't quite that isn't quite normal, isn't mm. quite like everybody else. You just have to go, oh, well, it's just me. But isn't it funny that in stepping outside of that and actually owning that mm. in a sort of roundabout way, whether it's cutting your hair and dyeing it brown or, you know, doing a show that no one else has done, yeah. that you actually become more accepted because you're getting more auditions or you're getting nominated for big awards. I think it's really important to constantly come back to what your goals are. Because in a very, uh, in the arts industry, which is very competitive and there are so many people being amazing and creative and going on these cool journeys, I think you can get sucked really easily into a spiral of either going, oh, look at what they've got. Why didn't I get that? Or, you know, why didn't I get that audition? Or why aren't I writing for that publication or that gig or that agent? It's, It's very easy. And I think very, it's human nature to fall into that which is why sometimes I think it's good to write down what your goals are because you can be like, oh, I didn't get that because that's not what I'm going for. That's not, that's not my goal. Mm. My goal is over here. And then I think it also opens you up to being a little more supportive of people when good things do come to them because then you can be like, great, you're achieving your thing. I'm achieving my thing. Go team. Um, that said, you'll fall off that every now and again. You'll be like, fuck that guy. But that's you just got to be, <laughs> be on top of it. Well, I mean, there's always going to be people that you perceive to be um, more fortuitous or less deserving, but in better situations or whatever it may be. Yeah. But and ultimately then, it doesn't really matter. No, know? it doesn't really matter. And quite often when you actually talk to those people, if you're fortunate enough to do that, 
you find out that everybody's just the same. They'll have their insecurities about somebody else or they'll have their own things going on in their personal lives. It means they can't even properly enjoy that scenario or everybody's on such a similar level that mm. it's it's sometimes quite funny. Mm. Yeah. So tell me about being a female comedian. <laughs> there's quite a stigma attached to that. I think I think it's I think it's actually dissipating, but certainly when you would have started there would have been a massive stigma around it. Yeah, I think there is. Um I think one of the things that's actually uh, that's changing is that people aren't asking the question as much anymore, um, which is good. This, I think, was one of the first... This was the first comedy festival in all the years I've been in the comedy festival where there wasn't an article run in one of the main papers on why women are funny. Yeah. Um, Isn't you know, that just a kick in the teeth? It really is. And I think that a lot of the time, one of the tricky things that, that happens is that you'll get asked to be on something as a female comedian and the first question you're asked is what's it like to be female comedian and immediately you're actually deprived of the ability to be funny because suddenly then you're having a very deep political conversation about about the sexes and about equality and about perception whereas if a man was on the show they'd be like so what would you think of the footy last night and you'd crack some jokes you know what I mean mm. so not only is the question I think just a little bit outdated I think it also limits people because it's it, it, it stops them doing their job, which is to be a comedian, because now all of a sudden they're a spokesperson. And I find it very interesting. It happens a lot. Um, you know, I don't want to mention this particular comedian's name just in case she's not, I don't know if she talks about the story publicly, but she was asked on a breakfast show and was on there and meant to be talking about what's it, what it was like being a new mother. And she had all this new material about being a mum. She had some actually very good jokes. I've seen them performed on stage but instead, at the last minute, they just want to discuss what it was like being a female in comedy. Right. And she's like, "Well, okay." And it, it's not a funny to- it's not a funny subject either. Mm. So. And here I am talking to you about that. No, but it's fine. It's it <laughs> is. There has been a growth and there has been a change. And I actually don't think it will be spoken about much more. I reckon give it a few more years and it won't be. And I still do gigs sometimes in in some places, and it is an issue. And you mm. get on stage and you immediately go, "Oh, this is a thing." especially because I'm a female who swears and that really bugs some people. I've been, uh, I've been told not to swear at particular gigs where there has been a person on stage, a male comedian on stage, dropping the C word. And I know that it's because people find women swearing a little bit jarring. It's not a, a character thing for me. I just, I have a potty mouth. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just how I talk, but yeah. What's your favourite swear? Fuck. I just think it's such a versatile, wonderful word, and it can just it just can just color sentences so beautifully. I really love the word, and I also love the uh, the C bomb, which I won't drop on this show, just because I think it I is think the it's one been dropped on every episode. You do? It has? Has yeah, it really? I think so. <gasps> That's amazing. I think it's one of the few words left that create a genuine shock moment. Cunt. Yes. Because <laughs> there aren't many shocking words left. Yeah. I think... Um, Have you ever used that in a, in a sexual environment? No. It's actually really... can be really potent, I think. Yeah, no. I've, I've, um, I've only ever used it for a punchline for one joke. And I still love that joke. And I, I hold on to that joke very dearly. <laughs> and no, I don't actually use it very much in my everyday... Like day to day... There are two words I will never use, which is the N-word. Mm-hmm. And there is a derogatory F-word that people use to describe uh, homosexual people. Mm. Um, those two words I actually do, I find quite jarring and quite ugly. But I think that you can uh, you can cause more harm in a sentence without using any swear words than, yeah, for than sure. by saying the word fuck. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, words really just you know have the meaning that people associate with it exactly and that and that is funny actually though because i've heard a man on a street uh call a woman a bitch which isn't a very potent word these days but it was the way he said it and the way he used that word and occasionally slut can be used very similarly there can be sometimes such an Mm. aggression behind that word that it's like even slag yeah you know what i mean you know sometimes just such similar such sorry small words can you can really heat them up yeah Mm. yeah it's the venom and the potency i guess yeah that's thrown at it. So coming back to you as a female comedian. As a lady. As a lady in the comedy world. I suppose the reason that I was asking is because, as well as the stigma around being a female comedian, you also uh, happen to be a female comedian who's 
I guess the, the foundations of your stand up was in sport. Yeah, it was. Um, once again, it was. It wasn't an intentional intention intentional. There we go. There you go. There we go. Mornings. <laughs> um, direction to head down. I uh, I've always been fascinated with boxing. From a very young age, I'd occasionally see bits and pieces of it, and I found it really intriguing. And then my first show happened to be about boxing, and I I trained and I became a boxer, and I've had a couple of fights, and still find that sport incredibly intriguing. Then my next show was about a hero of mine that I loved when I was growing up, which was Brendan Favola. He's an ex-Carlton footballer. That that slight snigger from Al appropriately sums up <laughs> Brendan Favola. So my next show happened to be... What was that show be, called? Um, Touched by Fev, which is really bad because if you Google my name now, one of the third things that come up is Tegan Higginbotham, Touched by Fev, mm. which if you don't know that was a show, looks really dodgy. Yeah, and you might associate it with, you know... Bill Cosby. Or, <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Ralph um, Harris. Of course, all these things. Um, so then I did a show about him and then, yeah, all of a sudden there was that that um, that typecast of the female comedian who likes talking about sport, which I really don't mind at all because I, I do like talking about sport. Um, and so my third show then, I just kind of went down that path again because I realised it was setting me apart and my third show was called Game Changer. Mm. Yeah. I read a review from... Um... 2013 from your touched by fev show which said one thing was clear this girl needs a bigger room (laughs) that's nice how did you feel like with that kind of hype around you i don't know if you knew if you know that specific quote but with that sort of uh hype how did that make you feel um the first two years i did my solo show there was a lot of really wonderful hype around me which was great um, I got nominated for a Best Newcomer Award, which was a really big deal for me at the time and did get a really a couple of really nice reviews. I think what was interesting is that the third year I did a solo show, which was 2014, there wasn't any hype and it all dropped away. And, um, and that year was particularly hard, not only because my ticket sales had plateaued and I wasn't as in love with my show, but I noticed that people were treating me very differently. And people who uh, had been very friendly during those two years where I was the, you know, a, you know, a bit of a, a thing to talk about, all of a sudden they were walking past on the street and not acknowledging me or I'd just get a hay from them. And I'd kind of thought, oh, these guys are my friends, whereas they weren't. They were just, you know, getting in on the hype a little bit. Mm. And I think that year was really important for me because it was particularly hard but it was important to see the people who honestly didn't give a shit whether I was doing well or whether I was doing badly. And I, it was it was nice to, it's that horrible cliche sentence, but to find out who your real friends are. Mm-hmm. And that now has just put me in a really good stead, I think, moving forwards. And to enjoy that attention when you've got it. You know, if you have been nominated for something, or if you are doing really well, bask in it. Like, love that shit and use it because those networking times are really important for you to get your name out and for you to, to make really valuable connections. But I think it's also really worthwhile not to not to forget the people who are your genuine friends and not to not to get too wrapped up in it either. It was important for me. And on such a small scale of something like a comedy festival, it was really important to learn that lesson when it was such a small situation than, you know, having something really big happening and, and kind of losing myself to the wank a little bit. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's something that I've spoken to actually everyone who's come in about is this idea of fame and what that's kind of meant. And Mm. I think that's what you're talking about is, I'm not talking about mega stardom, but for those first couple of comedy festivals, you were famous by hype. Yeah. At least within the comedy community. Within that bubble, I was definitely one of the people being spoken about more. It felt those years. And yeah, it's it's really interesting how you are perceived differently and how people start talking to to you differently. And when it first starts happening, it is, it's really intoxicating and you really like it. And when it goes away, it's really, it feels really cold. Mm, Deflating. Yeah. And I can imagine that for people who experience genuine, real fame, like these people who are at the top and are in all the magazines and on over uh, the television and stuff like that, coming down from that must be incredibly difficult. Mm. It must be actually really hard and you can, you can understand why people actually need a lot of support during that time because it is, it is quite an emotional roller coaster. I think. Mm. Do you ever get 
notice, like just out in the world? I think it's happened once or maybe twice. And, uh, and on both times it's been just people saying nice things and it's been really good. And, but, uh, I, I am one of the comedians who I would actually consider myself to be a little bit on the shire, socially awkward side with people that I don't know. Mm. So it's not something that I'm chasing. Mm. I think if I could end up in a place where I continue being sustainable with my career and, you know, can maybe one day live the dream and own a house, which is like the dream <laughs> these days, Isn't it? Um, but still lead a fairly private life, I think that would make me quite happy. Mm. Yeah. So another thing that you manage to weave into your comedy is nerd culture. Yes. <laughs> particularly Harry Potter. Yes. I wonder... Obviously, sport and nerd is deliberate. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's keeping in line with what you're saying before about doing something different, being true to yourself, stepping into that, which I guess is the lesson that we're learning today. It's funny. Every episode has had a lesson extracted from it somehow. Yeah, right. Oh, this is um, good. I like I like this lesson. This is a nice it, it, one. Yeah. Well, I'm still, try- I'm still grappling with it myself. So, yeah, talking mm. about it's quite good. Um, do you think there's... Is there a science to comedy? Um, and I don't mean something that repeatedly will work time and time again in a literal sense, but you've kind of taken... All right, well, you're starting off as a female. Yeah. But then... And, and so there's that stigma that we we're talking about before, mm. but now you're stepping into sport, which is a very accessible thing for both men and women. Yeah. And you're bringing, or, and, and through that you're weaving nerdism, I guess, for lack of geekism, for yeah, lack yeah, of a better yeah. term, which, ha- which at that point in time was becoming quite topical, quite popular, and is very personal for you. Yeah. Is there some sort of science behind that and, and the way that you progress with that? Look, I, I don't I don't think there is simply and I don't think there can be simply because comedy is such a subjective and a varying art form. What I will do on stage compared to somebody like Laura Davis, who won this year's Gibbo Award. She's a very dark, very dry comedian. Like they are such different performances and the lessons that I'm learning would be so different from the lessons she's learning. Mm. I guess the one thing that you can say will always come down to just a tried and tested rule is keep doing it. The more you do it, the more you'll learn and... And you will get better. You know, practice makes perfect. You've got to just, mm. you've just got to keep getting back up on that stage if you want to do this. And yeah, for me, it would be that the being honest is probably the better way to go about it. I think also because if you, if you are if you are lying, eventually you're going to get tired of lying on stage. And I think you are just going to have a much more enjoyable experience if you're up on stage being yourself. And that's another thing with stand-up is that I, I'm, in my sketch performing, I feel very comfortable and I know who I like to be. And because I've been working with Adam for 10 years, I know what that relationship is. My relationship with my audience as a solo performer is something I'm still trying to find. And perhaps that's why, you know, I am still having these very up and down periods with stand-up is because I haven't solidified what that true self is on stage yet. Mm. So, yeah, no, I don't think there is a science to it because it is, as I said, it's such a an individual and varying thing, but just keep doing it. <laughs> Persistence is key. Maybe that's the lesson. Yeah, today. it really is. And, and just trying to be aware, you know, if you've got a, if you have a shit gig, as I said earlier, there will be those ones that, um, that don't work, but occasionally you will be able to actually grab something from it and, and learn mm. something from it. Yeah. So coming out of, was it your second show that you start getting gigs writing with the age? Yeah, I did, which was really nice. Um, actually, it shows you the power of social media. It wasn't the gig that did that for me. It was that I, um, when I first got onto Twitter, I put a lot of time into my Twitter account. I would dedicate it about an hour to an hour and a half each morning, reading through the news, then trying to write news-related jokes off the back of that. Mm. It was part of trying to train myself to streamline my comedy, actually, because I did come from a bit of a, a longer-form background, trying to get down a setup and a punchline within 180 characters was a really good tool. And it did help my stand up immeasurably actually. 
But I put a lot of time into Twitter and things were going very well with Twitter and the editor of The Age was following me under a different name and I didn't realise hmm. and that's how he found out that wow. I was interested in sport because I'd be tweeting every now and again just something and he saw that I did have a fairly unique voice and a fairly unique look at things and that's how he got in contact. Wow, that's remarkable. It was really amazing. I've actually gotten a, quite a few jobs based purely on my Twitter account which is both wonderful and scary because sometimes I write the most bizarre shit up on there and you're like, oh, no, maybe you shouldn't because people actually read this shit. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Start censoring yourself. Yeah. Well, not censoring, but just sometimes just being a little bit aware. Just mm. a little bit. Yeah, I guess censoring. Absolutely. It's <laughs> <laughs> not sugarcoat things. Yeah, here. it's totally censoring. Uh, do you have any advice for people on how to use social media? Because I know a lot of people have no fucking idea. Just... um. Just that if you put a social media account out in your name, then that is an extension of your business. And that doesn't necessarily that it has to, that you have to be writing really smart, intelligent things on there all the time, but people can see that stuff. People can screen cap that stuff. And that means they have that, that little quote that you've put out there forever. So just to be a little bit smart with it and yeah, just do think about what you want to do with it. And if you don't want to put time into it, I'd probably say don't open that particular account, you mm. know? Yeah. So, or open it under a different name if you just want to be reading other people's tweets. But if you've put something out in your name and you're an artist, as we established before, that's your business. So just be careful with it. Yeah. Mm, no Michael Richards-esque rants. Who's Michael Richards? What have I missed here? Kramer. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Maybe don't be racist. <laughs> Don't yeah. do that. I mean, that's probably just a good life lesson. He really. was anti-Semitic though, wasn't he? he was No, it was racism no, from no. him. I mean, anti-Semitism is racism, but... True. Um, yeah, no, he you know had that meltdown at, at, a, at a stand-up gig yeah. that he did. I saw that footage. Pretty heartbreaking. It was really upsetting. I just like to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard when you get like that with some of your heroes and you just want to pick and choose. And then you go, no... No, mm. sorry, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not cool. Um, so you've been doing writing for the age for a few years. Um, yeah, a couple, couple of years. And certainly in the last maybe twelve months, mm. I feel like you've taken. Um, it's, um, I don't want to say a more female-centric kind of angle on it, mm. but coming back to what we we're talking about before about stigmas in female comedy yeah similarly i feel like you now feel maybe now that you've got this kind of audience that you can start investigating female sports more yeah well i think i've realized that any any um hurdle that i may face as a female comedian is probably faced so much more if you're a female athlete um you know, I, I had a really interesting chat with a female boxer, Susie Q. Ramadan, recently. Uh, she's not only female, but she's Muslim. Like, she comes up with this double whammy of prejudice in this country. And I had asked her really stupidly why she'd taken a two-year break because I looked at her records and there was this big chunk of time where she wasn't fighting. And it wasn't that she took a break. It's just that she just couldn't land a fight. Mm. She either couldn't get people to put the money up to see that fight or she just couldn't get people of her standard to wow. agree to fight with her. And, you know, you look at the women who, many of whom partook in the Lingerie League, uh, that was Christmas of last year, that big thing that happened, the Lingerie League, they named it the Legends League. These women weren't necessarily all out there going like, yeah, I want to be in underwear. They just wanted to play sport. Mm. A lot of them had backgrounds in football and soccer where there's just no money behind them and they just wanted to pay, play a sport on a competitive, like, big stage where there was the promise of potentially there being money and that money didn't even end up coming through for those women. Like, it's just, I think that, yeah, if you if you want to be a female athlete, you just have to take such a hit financially and it's not fair but um, I, I, um, I went and saw the netball for the first time this year and it was really good. I went into it kind of going, oh, I'll go watch this, whatever, because I hated <laughs> netball in high school. It is a really good sport. So it's something that I'm actually quite excited to support now because I think they, they, just, they just bloody deserve it. They really do. Mm. They just deserve a little bit more support. Do you feel a sense of obligation as a female with a voice to perhaps speak for those that don't? Not an obligation, it's just a genuine desire to to try and 
do something positive. Um, I don't feel obligated at all, nor has anybody ever made me feel obligated. I know that my editor's really excited whenever I choose to take on those sorts of articles, but you know, he, he there's no pressure from anybody, that's for certain. I just think it's something that um, that I am interested in. And it's also, I was genuinely really excited to be there at the game it was a good game so I'm also not fabricating anything I I was surprised that I hadn't been earlier it's really good (laughs) Mm. yeah so you're working on your next show piecing together ideas um I'm trying to figure out what I'm passionate about at the moment and what I feel like talking about and the here we go I'll discuss with you what I'm grappling with I um Valentine's Day this year, I went and saw the, sh- the film Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, yes. Now, I thought that that film was about kinky sex and... Uh, and going and- into the film, you thought that. Yeah, sorry, I thought that it was going to be just a film where there was going to be a few sex scenes. And I'm like, great, whatever, Valentine's <laughs> Day, get your nogs out. Like, I was excited. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> turns out this whole Fifty Shades of Grey franchise is about something a lot more than that, which is about this whole uh, submissive, dominant kind of idea but extending into every aspect of life so this character Anastasia Steele meets a guy called Christian Grey and he wants to basically control everything from who she sees to what she eats Mm. to what she wears and in this film and in the books because I've looked into them as well this is portrayed as being a very sexy idea at one point he actually says to her just let me control your life and it will be so much easier and this is like oh swoon and he um he then physically abuses her as well, uh, which is all meant to be in this 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 kinky realm. At one point, he breaks into her house. House. He attacks a friend of hers who they've been longtime friends because he was jealous of this guy. Yeah. And because this lead character, Christian Grey, is a billionaire and a very attractive one at that, this is meant to be sexy, but it's it's terrifying. So it's kind of like the Batman of kink. Yeah, and it's um. And I think I went in and, and, and I was so shocked when I came out at the message that this was putting out there. And then when you hear how successful these books are and the film was, and then you couple that with where we're at with domestic violence in this country, it's mm. it's really scary. I find it really, really terrifying. So I'm kind of fascinated by it at the moment. And I wonder if there is is a show in discussing erotica and how... And the messages that it puts out there. Because, for example, I also looked on my phone. Uh, you've got the... I don't usually read a lot of books on my iPhone, but there's that iBooks store. Yep. All of the free books that are listed on there, the top ones that are being downloaded, are all um, erotica. Right. And Like erotic fiction? or Yeah, like- erotic fiction, yeah. And this is... Uh, women are just reading this stuff now. They're loving erotic fiction. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think people should be able to you know, really connect with their sexuality. Mm. But I worry that underlying all of this erotica, at least the stuff that I've skimmed through thus far, is a, is this theme of women being borderline raped. <laughs> there's, this, yeah, right. there's this really horrible theme where, where the men are, and, and this is terrible for men as well because the men are portrayed as these kind of very aggressive people and the women are all like, oh, God, swoon. And it's... um. <laughs> So I'm just at the moment grappling with whether there's enough comedy in there to do, to make it a show mm. or whether I try writing erotica because I think that would be very funny. And, <laughs> yeah, so I'm thinking about it a lot, but it is that thing of wondering whether it is appropriate for a comedy show and if I could do it the, the right amount of justice. Mm. Yeah. So that's what I'm grappling with. The other thing I'm grappling with is just doing a show called My Dog is Better Than You and just doing a show about dogs. <laughs> just Because dogs are awesome. They're so good. So as you can see, kind of polar opposite ideas there mm. and I just don't know don't what's know. appropriate at the moment. Get someone and... on a chain or a leash. Pardon? Get someone on a leash with a collar. There we go. Boom. There's your crossover. There's your crossover. Yeah. Make it a guy though or that's else we just... <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's that, it's that phase at the moment where I can and need to go, what am I passionate about what do I feel like I'd be excited to chat about every night on stage in front of a group of people but also then once again you go back to going to the business side of things what will sell Mm. what will get people into that show what will be the point of difference from the other 500 shows that you'll be competing with how would I design a poster that is interesting what is a title that will get people in because you know it is it is very lovely just to think about the creative side of things but so many people go into festivals with really good shows that don't sell because they've named it something that's just incredibly unappealing and they've posted shit. Mm. And you kind of go, well, 
your creativity hasn't been fulfilled and the business side of things now hasn't been fulfilled. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. So you're writing at the moment as well for a sketch show? Yeah, for a sketch show with Foxtel that's um, called Open Slather. Um, it's, it's a really interesting idea. They've brought together kind of these sketch gods of Australian television like Glenn Robbins, Magda Sabansky, Gina Riley, Jane Turner, and then they're now mashing them up with this younger generation of sketch performers. And I get to write, which is really exciting for me because I've never written for Not Me before. Mm. I've never been in a position where I, I, I write jokes and hand them off to somebody else and it's been a really interesting learning phase of learning to look at your work in this case as a product and not get too attached to it because you, you sometimes I will write things and I'm like oh that is the best and I don't get to play and I don't get mm. to do it and it's really hard so disconnecting from over. that a little bit yeah mm. what what do you think the value is in being someone who can step into multiple jobs because you know we've spoken at length um, about, you know, how fucking hard it is and, mm. you know, to sustain a career, to sustain income. And, you know, I think we've both kind of hit this purple patch in the last however long where yeah. we're actually consistently seeing income for our work. But I see a similarity between us in that it's not from one area. Yeah, it's exactly. from, And I think that, you know, we are asking people to pay us to do what we love mm. and that is a big ask. And so I think that you have to have so many fingers in so many different pies like you basically have to grow another arm just so you can sort out all your pies yeah. <laughs> because um and this is once again there will be those people who are fortunate enough to get a job that is long-term ongoing income in one area mm. but i think realistically you have to be able to do multiple things and you need to be willing to do multiple things and I, I won't say what, but there are some aspects of my job that I prefer more than others. But you do those other bits because it builds profile and it it's all just heading towards this creative end goal. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for being someone who can do stand up, do sketch, act yeah. and write. Yeah. And it and it does mean that sometimes that work load does overflow a little bit and you get four jobs that all crop up at the same time and you are working stupid hours and you yep. feel tired and you feel drained but you just have to then remember that when you do have those down times for me it's very often around Christmas January that's when everything quiets down you do have to be really appreciative of that downtime and use it to to really rejuvenate and just let your creativity bubble up again mm. um, because yeah I mean I'm not in a position yet where I can say no to things so mm. yeah how many hours were you doing during the comedy festival? Because you were writing during the day and then yeah. comedy. So night. I generally wake up at seven. I do a usual eight hour um, day at work. And then I just from there train straight into the city, move, go into my theater, set up the space, perform from nine till um, 10 30. Because you guys had to set up and break, bump Yeah, it was the night. longest big bump in, bump out every night. And then, yeah, I'd get home at about midnight. And if it was a good night where there was no shows afterwards and repeat and did that every day for a month and then in between that still writing and still doing stand-up gigs on the side and yeah and your social media and yeah all that sort of stuff but it's just you know that's that's what it is mm. yeah mm. so why do you think you do it for those moments where you are on stage and it works mm. because you love it for the watson show because adam mckenzie and the other performers that i worked with uh, make me laugh, that genuine sort of gut laugh that you <laughs> you feel very lucky to have access to. Mm. And um, because, yeah, I just, I love creating things. And I, I like that I'm in a position now where I can start toying with really saying something with my creativity just bit by bit, yeah. just, just a little bit, yeah. What's the funniest joke you can remember? Oh, God, I don't know. I actually don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. You've stumped me on that one. It also just depends on what mood you're in. Yeah. I can see somebody fall over and I'll be like, yes. <laughs> and then the other days you just want something really intricate and really intelligent. Yeah. Mm. Although I did rewatch The Office um, recently, The British Office. And I think it's one of the smartest things I've ever seen. I adore that show. What is it about it? That it makes you so uncomfortable and it is such an incredibly sad look at some people. But then there are moments where it's just so funny. And the performances in it, I've never respected it this much. Looking back this time, none of those performers look like they're acting ever. 
Mm. It just looks like a documentary. It's outstanding. It's so it's so well performed, so well written. The journey is so painful, and then the end is so rewarding. It's it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Think you're gonna do much much more acting? I hope so. Mm. I really do. Do you love it? Yep. So much. Every time I get an audition, I feel very privileged because <laughs> I love it. Mm. Yeah. Something very special about the connection for you, isn't it, between what you're doing and who's receiving it? Yeah. I think also last year I I got to work with a couple of really cool people and you do feel a bit, well, Sam, who you had on the show the other day, I got mm. to work with him earlier on this year. How was and, that? I don't think we ever spoke about that. No, we didn't actually. It's um, he is a He is a machine to watch. Just so giving, not only to the performance, but to every person who's on set. Just that sort of thing that you hear of a good performer, which is that they really do acknowledge everybody. Mm. And, you know, once again, just seeing that good behavior and really learning from it and finding it valuable. And then realizing how hard it was to perform alongside him because he does just give so much energy. I find that I'm quite a high energy person, but I felt so flat performing mm. next to him and I really had to lift my game and it's, it's seeing that sort of thing you go Jesus this is why this is why you are who you are because there's, there's something there and it's it's outstanding yeah mm. and he's nice <laughs> it's really nice <laughs> he is a good egg yes that Mr. Johnson mm-hmm. aside from his unicycling uh, yeah <laughs> what was that about right <laughs> breast cancer <laughs> what even is that Ooh, I Ooh. feel bad now <laughs> Well, that seems like a good place to kind of round it out. Thank yeah. you so much for doing this with me, for no, thank you shooting for the me. shit with me. Yep. What makes you silly? Um, the way I dance, which not many people will ever see. <laughs> That's the silliest thing about me. I'm terrible at it. And for those of you who are listening, Tegan is currently dancing. And Nick still has his pants off. Go, Nick, go. Jiggle it. Let's end it there. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, I can't believe we're at the end of episode five. I can't thank you all enough for sticking around, friends. For those of you who have come back for more, and for those of you who are here for the first time, so much and so many gratitudes from me to you. Uh, Don't forget, you can find us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T to stay up to date with all of the rambles, all and each and every one of them. And you can find Tegan on the social medias as well, on the Twitters at TeganMH, which is T-E-G-A-N-M-H, or the Instagrammies, if that's what you're into, at Tegan Higginbotham, and Higginbotham is H-I-G-G-I-N-B-O-T-H-A-M. Thank you so much from me, Alistair Marks, and all of my guests up to episode five and including episode five. We'll see you next week. And coming up next, Paul Verhoeven. <laughs>